Well, today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 44. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I begin this sermon with a story that is, at least initially might seem only tangentially related to the passage that was just read. Now when Matt read those opening words, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, I was transported in my mind's eye to another time and another place. And the time was the late aughts or early teens, right around 2009, 2010, and the place was the patio of uh, Ojai Presbyterian Church. See, one of the things that people don't realize in, in when you grow up in a cold weather place like, like Minnesota or many of the places in our country, like, you know, we have our fellowship area, beautifully remodeled new fellowship area right over there that I can't wait to use post-pandemic. But in California, we would just have coffee, coffee on the patio each and every Sunday after church. And you could do it 95% of the time. The only time you couldn't was when it rained. And so, you know, we would go out on the patio after service and we would do our, our, our chit-chat and have our coffee and everything. And uh, I remember one particular Sunday morning, I was lovingly accosted uh, by one of our dearest old members, a guy by the name of Jack Heiler. Um, who, who rolled up to me on his motorized scooter and, 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 and went up to me, and the first word out of his mouth was, Beth Fage. And I said, come again? He said, you said Beth Fage. It's Beth Fage. And so Jack insisted that he had it on good authority, that that was the correct pronunciation of that word and that place. And so every time I see that, um, in Scripture, my mind goes to Jack. And Matt, I, I'm, Beth I'm a team Bethphage, but Jack insists, and so I will honor him. Bethphage this morning. Now, at this time, uh, when he said this to me, Jack was about 90 years old or, or so. And he was a man who had lived one of these incredible lives that seems like it was only possible in, in a past century. He'd been raised in Connecticut as, as a Yankee wasp. 
But then in the early 1930s, his, his family, you know, uh, felt the call of the West, and so they moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and, and they started ranching, and, and eventually they founded one of the first, you know, dude ranches where dudes from the city could come and experience what it was like to live in, in an area that still had kind of an Old West feel to it. And when he was on the ranch, Jack became an excellent horseman, and, and there he assumed this persona of, of a westerner and a cowboy that he kept with him for the rest of his life, even though he went back east to Princeton to attend college. And while he was living in Wyoming, he met the one and only love of his life, a woman named Margaret, who was dead by the time we had met him, but his love for her was very much still alive. And she had been the daughter of pioneer Presbyterian missionaries to Korea. And Jack served in the Second World War, but his assignment was interesting. He was actually in the National Chinese Army, serving under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek, and he had attained the rank of colonel in that service and become fluent in Chinese. And then after he served, he worked for decades teaching English literature at this exclusive private school in Ojai called the Thatcher School. This very interesting school where, where kids are required to um, care for, part of their education is learning to ride and caring for a, their own horse. And so Jack loved teaching literature, but even more than that, he loved teaching young men and then later young women about how to care for a horse. And the Thatcher School, uh, its alumni include people like Thornton Wilder and Noah Wiley. And Jack was such an institution at the school that following his retirement, the school did something unprecedented that they've never done before or since. They allowed him and Margaret to build a house on school property that Amy and I had the good fortune of visiting a couple of, of times. Now, when, my, when, when I read those words this week, Beth Fage, my mind went back to Jack, and, and, and Jack passed away in 2014, um, but I reread his obituary. It was written by one of his sons, and it's this incredible tribute, tribute to his father and, and a chronicle of his life, but when I read it again, I noticed that there was actually something missing from it, something that I stood, understood to be central to Jack's life that you would not have known in reading this obituary. Nary a mention was made of something that Jack had made exceedingly clear to me was that the, 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 the center of his life, his deep and his abiding and his passionate Christian faith. You know, Jack understood that his work at this elite prep school was a ministry. He was ministering to these students who, who many of were like him from a different place in the country who had been sent off here. You know, they were elite children but there was something missing from their lives. And Jack wanted to offer that to them. But if you read through this obituary, you would never have known this. And Jack, without exception, when he was feeling well and he was in town, would attend Sunday services. But that was this giant gaping hole in this, you know, remarkable life. And so I say all this by way of introduction to say this is not actually, I think, that tangentially related to this passage. I think that Jack's life and his obituary and what was missing actually serves as a reminder that so often those of us who are so close to someone or something can miss something so central and important about them. And I think that's one of the stories of Palm Sunday. And I say this not to criticize his son. You know, there could be a million reasons why the obituary turned out that way, but to say that we so often can fall prey to this too, that something that seems so obvious to an outsider, we are blinded to as an insider. 
And I think that that's happening in, in our passage about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, you know, there's no palms in the sanctuary this Sunday, and I think that that's fitting because Luke is the one story out of the Gospels where we don't have any uh, foliage um, as a part of the Palm Sunday story. John's Gospel is where we get the palms. Mark and Matthew give us leafy branches being brought, but Luke, it's Coat Sunday for him. And so, uh, so that's why we have no palms that morning, not just because it's COVID and we don't have a processional to march around the sanctuary. But, but to those of us who call ourselves Christians, that Jesus is Lord and King and should be hailed as such, it seems so obvious. You know, in Luke, we read through Luke, he's done all these amazing miracles. He's taught with this authority and this insight and told these parables that just cut to the core. An angel announced his conception and an army of angels praised him at his birth. It seems so obvious, obviously, this person should be hailed as king. But within a week of our passage today, Jesus, who's been hailed as king at his entrance, would be crucified outside the city gates. For some reason, they just can't see the truth of who Jesus really was. And they were so close to him. They thought that they knew him and understood him so well. And this passage, which begins with triumph, you know, this triumphal entry, it ends with Jesus weeping over the city to which he came. He saw that Jerusalem wasn't going to get it. He saw what they were going to do with him. He saw that they would continue rushing headlong into their conflict with the Roman Empire, which would eventually result in the siege of the city and its destruction. At the end, he says he sees the siege machines coming. He sees the destruction coming. And he's telling them, stop. Stop. There's another way. There's a different way. There's a better way. But they couldn't see it. And they didn't get it, even though the truth was there, riding right in front of them. They were looking for a king, but, but, but they were looking for the wrong kind of king. But the, the, the signs are all right there. As Jesus approached the Mount of Olives, he asked his disciples to fetch him a mount. And, and this is notable because Jesus was walking everywhere. And he had walked the long road, the, 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 the long uphill climb that comes from Jericho where he was, you know, last week, and he was eating with Zacchaeus, and it's, it's a long and it's a hard road to get up to Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, he's at the Mount of Olives. You can see the temple. You can see Jerusalem from where he is. And so it's obviously not because he's tired, but because when Jesus enters Jerusalem for his decisive uh, week of his life, he needs to send a message. So everything that happens from here on out contains a rich message and symbols within it. He says, go, find a donkey, and, and here's how you're going to find it, and here's what you're going to say. And, and, and none of this, it shows that none of this was an accident. Everything is happening according to plan. And, and the plan is laid out in, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Zechariah in, in chapter 9, verse 9, where it, it says this, these words that unmistakably Jesus connects to what he's doing. Where Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing here connects to what Zechariah was talking about there. And a donkey, you know, we think of a donkey as a beast of burden or, or something, you know, not very glamorous. But actually, in the ancient Near East, and particularly in the history of Israel, a donkey is what a king rode. It's what David's son Solomon rode into Jerusalem 
after his bloody ascent to the throne following David's death. Solomon entered Jerusalem on on his father's, David's donkey. But here Jesus rides a donkey that no one else has ever ridden. And David himself had ridden a donkey and wept. But when David rode, it was not into Jerusalem, but away from Jerusalem because he was running for his life. And he wept, not over the fate of the city, but over the mess that his own life had become. So Jesus is a Davidic king. But he wasn't like the ones who had come before. He wasn't like the one who the people were looking for. And when he rode into the city, he's given the royal treatment. The the crowds sing and shout his praises, and, and they spread their cloaks before him. They're greeting him like a conquering emperor. And and in fact, Alexander the Great had been greeted in in a similar way when he rode into Jerusalem centuries before. The people had come out of the city. And probably to save their own skin, you know, they greeted him as this liberator and king and conqueror. And they said, come into the temple and offer a sacrifice. So the crowds are, are coming out and greeting Jesus in this same way. But Alexander had come as a conqueror, riding a steed that was battle-tested. But here, Jesus rode a borrowed donkey, an animal animal that shows that he comes in peace. Now, we know that Jesus is the conqueror, but not like the ones they were used to or the one that they had been looking for. And the crowds praised Jesus using the words of Psalm 118 which was a psalm that was sung by pilgrims as they were entering into the city for the great festivals. And at the heart of that psalm, it's not included in our passage, but at the heart of that psalm are these words that were applied to Jesus from the very earliest uh, strata of the Christian tradition. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation The stone that they least expected, that they thought wouldn't fit anywhere, is actually the stone that holds the entire edifice together upon which it's all built. And the Pharisees told Jesus, he said, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be singing this. They shouldn't be saying this about you. They shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says, well, if they're silent, the very stones will cry out. And he says this in sight of the temple. And so these stones that will cry out are the stones of the temple. And they must cry out because they recognize one of their own. The very stone that holds the entire temple together, the the temple which is the locus of worship and of sacrifice and of fellowship and, and the very presence of God with his people. Jesus is that right there. And so the people living in the city where the temple stood and who longed for its purification. They thought the temple, Jesus was not alone when he goes in and cleanses the temple and condemns the people who are in charge of it. There was a longing for a purification of the temple, for a purification of the religion of of the people. And so the city who were living in, in the place where that very temple was that they desired to be cleansed and purified missed the most crucial piece because it didn't look like what they had been looking for. And so I think what this passage highlights is that so often the problem isn't necessarily that we're looking for the wrong thing. And all of us are are looking for for similar things. We're we're looking for a a savior. We're we're, we're looking to be delivered from whatever it is that burdens us or oppresses us. We're we're looking for justice. We're we're looking to to kind of purify and clean the mess out of our lives. We're, We're looking for that. 
So it's not that we're looking for the wrong thing, but it's just that we don't know how to recognize what it is we're truly looking for. We don't know what it looks like. And so we allow our own expectations or a culture's expectations or some other outside expectation to shape what it is we think it must look like when salvation comes, when God comes, when he, when he shows up in our lives. What the world would look like when Jesus is in charge. And, and so we look for these things in a, in, a, in a politician or a political party, you know, someone who's going to re- restore the soul of America or, or usher in, you know, to, to a, a future where, where true human progress is achieved and, and we experience the universal fatherhood of God and the, the universal brotherhood of man. Or, or, or we look for this, you know, salvation in, 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 in social movements that are much more, you know, relevant than the well-worn paths that we've been walking and that our ancestors have walked before us. Or, or, or we look for, you know, him in, in, in the C-suite and amongst the successful, amongst members of the professional managerial class, the great and the good, not with the unwashed masses of society. We look for him in a, in a relationship that's going to fulfill us or, or a career that's going to identify us and define us. Or we would look for him in a, in a church with fuller pews or it's COVID, so I guess more streams and, and, and clicks and bigger budgets and better programs and the best staff. All of us are looking for God. We're looking for salvation. We're looking for a deliverer. We're looking for someone to just wipe the slate clean. It's just that we want him to act and look a certain way. And just like we kind of expect so that we really don't have to change anything. So what do we do with a king like Jesus then? Who refuses to be what we want him to be? Well, there's a few options we see in this passage. We can obey him like the disciples who fetched the donkey, not knowing, not necessarily understanding, but trusting in his plan. We can praise him like the crowds, and even if our, our, our praise is fleeting, raising our, our, our voices and throwing what we have before him to honor him. We can grumble like the Pharisees, because when Jesus shows up, things get messy and embarrassing, and people do and say things that we don't think we, that they should. But worst of all, we can reject him, like the city to which he came. Because as we see in this passage, at the end, Jesus weeps for the city. And what's interesting is, you know, we're familiar with that, you know, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. And he weeps in John's gospel because his friend Lazarus has died, and, and people are grieving deeply because of that. Well, here's another time, the only other time actually where Jesus weeps, and it's over the city. And his tears show us that God takes no pleasure in the judgment that will befall Jerusalem, quite the opposite. In fact, what we see here is that actually one of the worst forms of judgment is when God lets us get our own way. Jerusalem is going to seek, you know, liberation through a violent conflict with Rome. Well, Jesus says, God is going to let you get your own way. And that, so often, is the worst form of judgment. And so my prayer this Palm Sunday is that we will see Jesus for who he really is and for where he really is. 
Where is he? He's on the road to the cross. He's surrounded by the poor and lowly, and he is rejected by the high and mighty. And he is a king with tears in his eyes, but the fire of determination in his bones. Not the king that we were looking for, but the one that we so desperately need. And I close with these words from a commentary I read this week on this passage. Do we yearn deep in our souls for a king, for a different kind of king? The kind of king we've met in Luke, the king of sinners and outcasts, the poor and oppressed, who calls us to join in the worship of the one who, in the words of Mary's song that she sung 30 years before this and, 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 and centuries ago, as she was looking forward to what her son would accomplish, a king who has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, the God who has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them, the God who gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, the God who will guide our feet in the way of peace. So let her song be our song. Let their song, the, the disciple song on Palm Sunday, be our song. And there's no reason, no reason at all for us to leave the singing to the stones. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.